So I'm going to be talking about a case of an unanticipated difficult intubation. And I know not all of you will intubate patients, um, but what is important, I know a lot of your pediatricians and you will potentially intubate a neonate in the neonatal room, in the neonatal unit, sorry. And this case is just as likely to happen there. Um, you may not intubate patients at all, but given the fact you're at a pediatric emergency day, there's a chance you're going to be in the room when a critically ill child is intubated. So if that's, the if that's potentially going to happen, some of the knowledge I'm going to share with you today, you could actually use to save a child's life. And I will guarantee you that a lot of you think certain techniques will get you out of trouble. And I'm going to completely blow your mind with this talk because some of those techniques are guaranteed to fail 100% of the time that are in national guidelines in certain circumstances. So this is hopefully going to be pretty useful. So I'll make a start with our case. So we've got Jack is a four-month-old baby boy, three and a half kilos, and he presents to his local district general hospital in the middle of the night with bronchiolitis. He is an ex-prem, born at 28 weeks, and he was intubated at birth and given surfactant. He then developed a pneumothorax, had a chest drain, and all in all, he was ventilated for around about a week. Um, he then went on to a combination of CPAP and high flow for another couple of weeks. And he was on oxygen for quite a while. It was the first three months of his life. And he's really only been home for about a week. And it's quite often after the babies are just home, they get a virus and end up back in hospital. Apart from his lungs, he's actually done pretty well with his prematurity. He's a grade one hemorrhage on one side, and he's only on some vitamin supplements. So he's got away quite lightly. Um, taking a look at him, he's in the resus of your emergency department at the moment, and his airway is actually patent. Um, nasal passages have been suctioned out and lots of thick secretions removed. In terms of his breathing, he's got every possible sign of respiratory distress. He's tachypneic at 78 breaths per minute. You've already started him on some high flow at two litres per kilo. And over the last half an hour, that has escalated up to 100% oxygen. And he's only saturating at 87% on that. In terms of his air entry, when you listen in, it's almost non-existent and his chest is absolutely full of transmitted sounds. In terms of C, it's actually not too bad. Cap-free refill a little bit prolonged, around about three seconds, but nothing worrying with his cardiovascular system in terms of his pulses and his heart sounds. D has deteriorated over the last half an hour. When he arrived in the emergency department, he was quite alert. He's now really only responsive to voice. And in terms of exposure, the, the main thing to point out, he has got a little bit cold, 35-7, but he has been exposed over the last hour and some difficulties getting a cannula in, as you would expect in an ex-prem. So that's his chest x-ray, and unfortunately, it's not really reassuring. There's not an awful lot of air in those lungs. And his blood gas is equally unreassuring. So he's a severe, severe acidosis, which is mostly respiratory, pH is 7.01 with a CO2 of 14.1, although he does have a little bit of a metabolic acidosis, which is mostly due to lactate, which is rising at 3.7. So he has an anesthetic assessment in the emergency department. Um, on examination, there's no features to predict a difficult airway. Um, looking back at his history in the neonatal unit, asking his parents, they were never told he was a difficult intubation, but his neonatal notes have been requested and they're making their way over towards you. Um, he was last fed two hours ago. It was a bottle of formula feed. He didn't finish it, but he does still potentially have a full stomach. So he's referred through to the local pediatric intensive care unit who are happy to accept him for admission. They're sending the retrieval team out to you and they should be with you in about an hour and a half. 
So we reached our first decision-making point. Should we go ahead and intubate Jack now, or should we wait for the retrieval team to arrive? So go ahead and vote now over in Slido. So I think it's clear the majority of you are voting for yes, and I think that's definitely the right answer. Um, there's a skill in recognising when you can recover a child with um, potentially non-invasive support, but we've already tried that with a high flow, and he's hypoxic, he's hypercapnic, he's got signs of respiratory failure, he's an awful x-ray. And he probably, if you continue on, he's peri-arrest. So I think it's the right thing to get him intubated. Even if you feel a little bit uncomfortable doing that in a district general hospital, you probably can't wait for the retrieval team here. So we're going to intubate now. We'll click on yes. So a few more options for you. Um, he's currently on high flow. So should we leave the high flow on during the intubation for Thrive? And the idea behind Thrive is when you're not ventilating them and trying to intubate them, because you're still blowing oxygen down, as oxygen is used up in the lungs, it will be entrained um, down from the upper airways into the lungs and you'll get some gas exchange. Next option, um, should we do a classical rapid sequence? Um, because he has a potentially a full stomach, it will reduce his risk of aspiration. And finally, this is a teaching hospital. So should we allow the register to do the intubation? And you can select all or none of these. Okay, so I think the answers are in. We're probably going for Thrive, but not a classical RSI, and we're not letting the register near the airway. Okay, so let's select Thrive, no to the classical RSI, and no to the register doing the intubation. Okay, so we'll go ahead and pre-oxygenate Jack. Um, we give him some ketamine and rocuronium, a milligram per kilogram of each, um, and we start to ventilate him during the time when the muscle relaxant is working. He's actually quite difficult to ventilate, and we have a large leak around the mask, and a SATs fall down to 84%. We decide to put a Goodell airway in, move over to a two-person technique, but that doesn't really improve things. There's still a massive leak, and a SATs hit 79%. We wonder, could the high-flow cannula actually be causing problems and remove that, and we get SATs up to 88%, and we've got a better seal around the mask. Um, and it seems on theory that Thrive seems like a good idea for intubating these patients. The problem is it's almost impossible to get a seal around your mask with the high flow cannula in place. They're just too big and bulky in these small infants and neonates. Um, so I don't tend to recommend this. And in general, I think when people do it, they tend this is what tends to happen. Um, there is good evidence that Thrive works when you're doing a classical rapid sequence and you're not planning to bag the patient. Problem is, these sick patients, if you try to do a classical rapid sequence and not bag him, his SATs would be in his absolute boots before we had even started. So you, you're not going to get away with doing that. You are actually going to have to bag him during the apnea period. So with that in mind, I don't think Thrive is a good technique for these patients because you're just going to lose your recruitment and not be able to bag the patient. So moving on, we're good to see we're able to get a grade one view. The cords are widely open with our video laryngoscope. And we take our 3.0 microcuff tube in a straight-to-cuff position with a stellate in it and pass it through the cords. Um, problem is, it only goes through the cords about half a centimeter and then seems to catch. That doesn't seem like a big problem because that's happened to you before. It just tends to catch in those anterior tracheal rings. So you take your stylet out, rotate the tube round, hoping to change the angle. But no matter how many times you do that, you can't get the tube to go down into the airway. At this stage, the SATs have hit 70%. He's not currently bradycardic, but you decide to go back to face mask ventilation and you're able to get a SATs up to 88%. So the other important thing that we haven't talked about is letting the register do the intubation. 
And I, good to see most of you recognize that he was too sick for that. And I, I think that is the right decision. He has absolutely no reserve. He's an ex-prem, has chronic lung disease, potentially some pulmonary hypertension. He has a terrible x-ray with no air in it. Um, and he has an awful gas. And he is going to decompensate incredibly quickly on induction. So the most experienced person should be doing the intubation. The other thing you mightn't have recognized that actually his age is a major risk factor for running into difficulties. And that's why the adult anaesthetists often quite, quite worry about intubating children of this size. In fact, he's six times more likely to have a Cormac Leham grade three or grade four airway compared to a child over one year. Um, and we also know that difficult tracheal intubation occurs fairly frequently in children under 60 weeks of age. It occurs at actually 5.8% of cases. And that's defined as two or more failed attempts at direct laryngoscopy. So if that's occurring that frequently, more than one in 20, and you're going to have potentially a difficult airway, six times more likely, I think the consultant should be doing this intubation. At the moment, we're able to just about get a SATS up to 88%. We're using a two-person technique. We've got a Goodell in. We've got something funny going on with the airway. So in terms of calling for help, what should we do at this stage? So again, you can vote for all or none of these. Okay, so working through the options, buzzer pull, that's the only way that you're going to be able to get people into that room without somebody going out. And I don't think you really can spare somebody to go out and call for help. Problem is, if you do that, it's slow as well. They're going around finding one person, maybe picking the phone, can't get them, waiting for them to get back. And that is too slow. So I would be pulling the buzzer here. You're going to get more help into the room. And it almost focuses everybody that there's something serious going on here. In terms of informing the transport team that you're struggling, I don't think this is the first thing you're going to send somebody out to do. But whenever you get more people in the room, it is something you should definitely do. I've had a case over the last few years where the local team couldn't intubate or ventilate the, the patient. And they didn't phone to tell us that they were struggling. So we made slow, steady progress out to that patient. Um, we arrived and couldn't get in through the doors because everybody was in dealing with the emergency. Whereas had they picked up the phone and said we're struggling, we could have put the lights and siren on and got out to them quickly. We could have had some equipment prepared and we could have had a bit of a briefing in the back of the ambulance about what we were going to do when we arrived. And not only that, we could have told them what we think they should do to help get out of that situation. So not the first thing to do, but definitely something you should be doing. The second on consultant, I think, is absolutely massive in terms of human factors. If you're at the top of the bed trying to lead and manage the airway, you're not going to be able to do both effectively. So having that second skilled pair of hands is, is useful to be able to swap in, but also to be able to stand at the bottom of the bed, work through the difficult airway algorithms, and keep everybody on task without avoiding becoming task-focused. Um, ENT, I would be calling here, and good to see most of you wanted to do that. Um, there's something really dodgy going on with this kid's airway. And he has absolutely no reserve. You're much better to call them. If you do manage to get things sorted out in the next attempt, you can cancel them. And they will be delighted to be cancelled. And I have done this a number of times over the years. Needed them on one occasion. The other times I haven't. And they haven't been annoyed. They've been delighted to go away. Um, holding off the call for the next attempt, I think that probably is the, the only wrong answer as far as I'm concerned here. I, I think if you're you're doing that, the help might not be there when you need it. Okay, so at the moment, we're currently ventilating with a face mask, Goodell airway, two-person technique, and we're only able to hold sats in the high 80s. So what do you want to do now? Okay, so the answers are still coming, but I think it's pretty clear we're going to have another go at trying to intubate them. 
I think that's the right thing. You're the experienced people there. You're going to have to sort this problem out, and you've only had one go so far. So let's have another go at trying to intubate. So in general, when you're working through a difficult airways algorithm, there is you're generally meant to change something between one attempt and the next. You don't tend to just repeat the same thing time and time again. So again, with all these options on the screen, you can change all of them, or you can change none of them. But the fact I've told you, you probably should change something means you should pick probably at least one of these. Okay, so it looks like you want to change the tube. I'll give it another few seconds to see if you want to change the operator. No. So we're just going to change our tube. Okay, so change the operator, no. Change our laryngoscope, no. And change the tube, yes. Okay, so we stick with our video laryngoscope and we've still got a grade one view. We downsize the tube to a size three on cuffed endotracheal tube. Now, importantly, it's the same size in terms of the internal diameter, but the fact that it doesn't have a cuff means the outer diameter is slightly smaller. And with micro cuff tubes, it's about 0.2 millimeters smaller. We have exactly the same problem. It goes down about half a centimeter, and no matter how many times we rotate it, we can't get it to go down into the airway. We downsize it again to a two and a half on cuffed endotracheal tube, and this time have it completely straight with a stylet in it and try and pass it. Unfortunately, it's exactly the same problem that we're getting. The tube is just through the cords, so we wonder could we actually ventilate through it with just a tiny bit through the cords? Try that. There is no chest movement, no end tidal, so the tube is removed. We have one final go with a size 5 French bougie, um, and unfortunately it is unsuccessful as well. It's exactly the same problem. It goes through that tiny bit, but no matter how many times you position it, you can't get it to go down into the airway. Now, the problem is whenever we remove that 2.5 endotracheal tube, we notice that the airway is becoming more and more swollen. It was pristine at the start, but you can see the edema and swelling that is developing. And when we actually remove that tube, there is blood on the end of it. So we go back to face mass ventilation, but it's getting harder as it often does between attempts. We've still got our Goodell in, we've got a two-person technique, and we've now got an NG tube in, and somebody is continuously aspirating that tube. And in fact, they can't aspirate it quick enough. Most of the gas we're putting in is going down to the stomach rather than into the lungs. Chest movement is only just about moving at the moment. We have only an intermittent end tidal CO2 trace, and our SATs have fallen to 72%, and our heart rate is down to 78. So what do you think we should do now? Okay, so it's, it's a pretty clear winner for front of neck access. Um, LMA is a close second winner, and pretty much everything else um, isn't really featuring. Okay, so we'll go for front of neck access. Um, so at the moment, you, so as well, you let the transport team know they're making good progress to you, but they're still going to be about 45 minutes away. ENT are about 15 minutes away. So what do you want to do? You've got a choice of a, of a cannula cricothyroidotomy, a surgical cricothyroidotomy, or a surgical tracheostomy. Interesting. I'll just ask the panel while we're waiting, what, what would you guys do here? If their team is 45 minutes away, I'd probably try for a surgical crico because you can ventilate the patient. Okay. I'd go scalpel budgie tube. Okay, surgical crack as well. We're gonna we're gonna stick with the, the audience's answer, but that's that's good to, good to know. Okay, so let's go cannula crack. So we take a 20 gauge cannula, pop it through the cricothyroid membrane or where we think the cricothyroid membrane is because it's really difficult to feel. And we connect it up to a rapid O2 device and give a long inflation. 
when we do, we sort of think maybe the there's a little flicker of movement of the chest, but maybe there's not. You can't convince yourself. And our SATs don't really respond. In fact, they deteriorate further. They're down to 33%. And our heart rate falls to 38 And CPR is carried on. So our cannula cricothyroidotomy hasn't worked. What should we do now? So we've got a few options. We can convert it over to a Melker, which is a, a Seldinger kit. You pass a wire down a cannula and then a dilator and tracheostomy tube over the top of that. We can do a surgical cricothyroidotomy, which some of the panel wanted to do before. We can go for a surgical trachea, or we can cover the puncture over and reattempt ventilation. So I think the panel might have, have influenced the answer here. Um, we're going for a surgical cricothyroidotomy. Um, few people want to do a milker, a few people want to do a surgical tracheostomy, and not too many want to cover over. And again, we've tried ventilation. It's not any more likely to work now than what it did before. Okay, so let's go for the surgical crack. So we go ahead and make a horizontal incision through the cricothyroid membrane or where we think the cricothyroid membrane is and pass a size five French bougie into where we think the trachea is. And again, the problem in these small babies is very difficult to identify the anatomy. We then try to pass our size three cuffed endotracheal tube over the bougie into the airway, but it just won't go into the airway. We downsize it to a two and a half cuffed endotracheal, sorry, two and a half uncuffed endotracheal tube and it seems to go in a little bit further um, but it doesn't that get that give that you've gone all the way into the airway. We try ventilation via the two and a half tube. And again, there's no end tidal. There's no chest movement at all. So we go ahead and remove the tube and CPR is continued on. So ENT arrive about 10 minutes into the cardiac arrest. You've prepared both their tracheostomy kit and rigid brunk for them. And they elect to go with a rigid brunk, first of all. They put it into the airway and note that Jack has agreed to subglottic stenosis. And after they dilate it, they intubate him with a size two and a half on cuffed endotracheal tube. And you can see it really is quite a tight fit after the dilatation. So the transport team arrive about 30 minutes later. And at this stage, CPR has been ongoing for around about 14 minutes. When they look at things, they realize that actually for the first 20 minutes of the cardiac arrest, although CPR had been ongoing, there wasn't really any effective oxygenation. And weighing that up with a long time of resuscitation already, a decision is made to stop CPR. So I am going to debrief this case, try and talk about why I think um, this has happened. But I think if you find yourself in real life needing to do emergency front of neck access in a child under one, and you don't have ENT there, I think what exactly happens in our case, death is going to be the most likely outcome. As you're going to see over the next 10 minutes or so, absolutely everything is stacked against you. And some of the things you think are going to get you out of trouble, um, that you've tried already, are destined to fail 100% of the time. And I'll go on and explain why. So the first thing is, whenever you have a difficult airway, there, there is a place I would go to, and that's the Difficult Airway Society Guidelines to try and work out what's going on. And I've already told you the under ones is a high risk group. And in fact, they're six times more likely to have a difficult airway than the over ones. So you would think the difficult airway society would have them really well covered in their guidelines. But what they've got for them is absolutely nothing. There's a guideline for one to eight years. And over eight years, they recommend you use the adult guidelines. But for under one, we've got nothing. So maybe we can just use the one to eight guideline for our three-month-old, three-and-a-half-kilo baby. 
So let's zoom in on the can't intubate, can't ventilate section and see what it says we should do. So when are you going to do it? Um, when your SATs have hit less than 80 and your heart rate's falling and you've already exhausted your airway rescue technique. So bang on when you guys said you wanted to do it. What should you do? Well, it really depends what help you've got there. If you've got ENT there, you've got a choice between a rigid bronch and ventilating via the bronchoscope or doing a surgical tracheostomy. If ENT aren't there, it's a cannula technique and you should put the cannula either through the cricothyroid membrane or the trachea. If that fails, then it's a surgical technique, again, either through the cricothyroid membrane or the trachea and pass an endotracheal tube into the airway. The big problem is the guidelines don't agree. And in fact, they contradict each other quite badly. Um, APLS says the complete opposite. So the needle technique should not be attempted in children under the age of five. And they're saying that under five, a scalpel technique is prepared, preferred. Under ones, it should be a tracheostomy. Between one and five, it should be a cricothyroidotomy or a tracheostomy. So it's a little bit of an unusual thing to say the under ones, it should be, a, you can't do a cricothyroidotomy, you must do a tracheostomy. But there is a reason behind it. And to do that, to look, to see the reason for that, you need to look at the size of the cricothyroid membrane. And there really only was one paper I could find which covered the size of the cricothyroid membrane in neonates. It's a South African paper. Um, and the only thing to point out is that the mean weight of the babies was quite low at only 2.05 kilograms. But when we take a look at the size of the cricothyroid membrane from what they found, it was an average size of 2.61 millimeters by 3.03 millimeters. So we should probably take a look and see what we can actually fit through that dimensions. So looking at the common things we might want to put through in an emergency. Now, importantly, all these devices are sized based on their internal diameter, but it's actually the outer diameter of the tubes that determines what you can actually put into the airway. So our 3 microcuff tube that we tried initially through the cricothyroid membrane in our case has an outer diameter of 4.3 millimeters. Compare that to the smallest dimension here of 2.61, absolutely no chance it's going to fit, and that's why it wouldn't fit in our case. What about the 2.5 endotracheal tube, the uncuffed one? Outer diameter of 3.7 millimeters, and this is probably the smallest tube that most units will stock outside neonatal units. So 3.7 millimeters, still a millimeter bigger than the cricothyroid membrane. So not going to fit. What about the milker kit I mentioned? And this is it. So you've got your wire in, you've got your dilator, and then you've got your um, tube over the top of it. The smallest commercially available one's a three and a half millimeter tube, which has an outer diameter of five millimeters. So it's almost double the size of the cricothyroid membrane. So there's not a chance that you're going to be able to fit any of these to the cricothyroid membrane in our paper. And that's why APLS is not recommending that you do this. Okay, so we can't do a surgical crank in a patient of our size. Maybe we can do a needle crank. Well, it's not without its problems. The adults, they have a really high failure rate, as high as 60% and have a lot of complications in it. The other big problem is, can you actually feel the cricothyroid membrane in a neonate? Um, I don't think I can feel something that's two by three millimeters in a small neonate's neck. Um, maybe you're maybe you're better better than me and you can, but um, I certainly couldn't think I could do that in an emergency. The other big issue you have, you can look here, we've got a nice shallow angle in this patient. Because our neonate's neck is going to be so much shorter, you're going to have to go at a much steeper angle. Because their trachea and airway is so much smaller, you're going to end up going through the posterior wall because you really think you can control that cannula within a few millimeters 
and hold it in the air by when there's a big bevel on the end of the cannula. I don't think I can. Um, if by some miracle you identified the cricothyroid membrane and you managed to get your cannula where it was meant to go, you can only oxygenate through the cannula. You can't ventilate. And I want to go back to that can't intubate, can't ventilate case that I talked about earlier on. When we did go out to that child and managed to get them intubated, we had a lot of recruitment maneuvers because their chest was incredibly stiff. And after that, put them onto the ventilator. Um, picked quite reasonably high settings because their lungs weren't good and they had a period of atelectasis. So by 25 over 10, looked over at the patient and their chest was not moving. Looked at the ventilator and on those high pressures, they were only getting one a bit mils per kilo tidal volume. So we had to dial those pressures up significantly. I think they went up well over 30 to just about move the chest and maybe get three mils per kilo tidal volume. So think of that patient in your mind now. That's, the, that's that patient who is going to be incredibly stiff lungs after a period of can't intubate, can't ventilate. And I want you to tell me if by some miracle you manage to get that cannula into the airway, do you really think this technique is going to get you out of trouble? So we've got a cannula and this is an orange cannula. We've got the rapid O2 device and we give a long inflation with it. And just look at the lungs. This is what is going to be happening to that patient's lungs. You get an inflation, you have to let the gas work its way out through the upper airways. And then you can give another inflation when the chest has fallen. What I was doing with a can't intubate, can't ventilate patient was this. So it's very different. You can see the difference in terms of PEEP. You can see the difference in terms of ventilation. And with that, we were really struggling. So that the technique before does not have a chance of working if your patient has sick lungs. So I think for me, in terms of what you should do in an emergency, it depends on these three factors. Age and size, is the cricothyroid membrane actually big enough that you can put something through it? What is the lung condition like? Is it, are you actually going to be able to move those lungs with cannula and oxygenation? And will the patient actually tolerate just oxygenation without ventilation? And how far away are ENT? If ENT are one minute away and I need to do something, I might be more tempted to try a cannula where I'm not going to cause irreparable damage to the trachea. Um, if they're going to be 10 minutes away or 15 minutes away like they were in our case, a cannula is not going to get you out of trouble. Um, just before we come on to the things you should do, some of the things you probably shouldn't do. In the literature, people do talk about putting the connector from a three and a half endotracheal tube onto the end of a cannula and ventilating with it. This is what happens when you do with a bagging circuit. And importantly, this is an orange cannula. You can see we're just not getting the pressure through it and we're actually distending the bag. If you do put a bag valve mask on, it is possible to force air through it. But I am squeezing this bag as hard as I can and I'm just about forcing air through it. So if you do, for whatever reason, decide the cannula technique is the right technique for you, you're better using a commercially available device like the Rapido 2 device. Um, you'll see here, this is just so much less effort and it does a much more effective job of oxygenating if you decide this is the right technique for the patient in front of you. Um, so to sum all that up, um, if you're looking for a really good source of what you should do in pediatric, can't intubate, can't ventilate, this paper is definitely worth taking a look at. They cover all the controversies between the guidelines, the size of the cricothyroid membrane, and their conclusion is if you're under eight, it's a surgical tracheostomy that you should do. If you're over eight, it's a surgical cricothyroidotomy. But in the over eight, you can substitute that for a cell dinger cricothyroidotomy. So not a cannula and leave the cannula, a cannula wire 
and then some type of tube that you can oxygenate and ventilate through. Um, they have a really nice video on a technique designed for non-surgeons, which I'll share with you now with their permission. Palpate the ventral neck. Feel for the notch between the trachea and the larynx. With a scalpel, perform a 4 to 5 centimeter vertical incision in the median line. Using two backhouse towel clamps, grasp and mobilize the skin and subcutaneous tissue on either side of the trachea, exposing the larynx and trachea on the anterior and both lateral sides. Pull the clamps anteriorly and apart. Ask your assistant to hold the clamps in this position while maintaining traction. Using the third backhouse towel clamp, encircle and gently pull the larynx anteriorly, exposing the cricotracheal ligament. Open the tipped scissors and gently penetrate the cricotracheal ligament with the tip of the lower blade. Gently sever the first and second tracheal ring by cutting through the anterior wall of the trachea in a craniocaudal direction. Next, the tip of the tracheal tube is inserted and advanced through the vertical incision down the trachea. Use rotational motion if necessary to ease passage down the trachea. Connect the bag valve to the tracheal tube and proceed with ventilation. Excursion of the lung and entitled CO2 confirm correct endotracheal tube placement. Okay, so I still do think that is probably a simplification of the technique. It's designed for non-surgeons with the particular instruments they use, but they do look like surgeons performing the procedure. So I imagine in my hands, it's not going to be quite as smooth as that or somebody else who's a non-surgeon. The other thing is, are you actually going to have those instruments available? But those first two you could actually deal with. You could rehearse this and you could actually make sure you did have that hit if you decide that's what your technique is going to be in that particular emergency. The other two problems that aren't in the video, the first is blood. Um, this is a cadaver. It's a rabbit specimen they've used. And in real life, I think the blood coming is going to obscure your view and make things more difficult. And the other thing that was missing from that video is the absolute terror that will be going through your mind, the shaking off the hands, as you're actually doing this to a baby's neck. So I still stand by my original statement. I think if you do find yourself having to do emergency front of neck access, hang on. if you do need to find yourself doing emergency front of neck access in a patient of that size, I still think death's the most likely outcome. But hopefully with this talk, I've shown you that some of the things that will not work 100% of the time. So a, a surgical crank in a patient of this size 100% will fail. Um, because the cricothyroid membrane is just too small. I think the lungs are that bad, and needle crank is going to, if you do manage to get it in, it's not going to do the job. So I think this is the only thing that would actually have helped our patient, um, although I still think death is going to be the most likely outcome. I'm going to finish with two slides on what I think the key learning points are. The first on what you could do when you're struggling to get a tube to go down into the trachea, and the second on can't intubate, can't ventilate. So I've already covered the rotation, and that's the tube sits at a, a little bit of an angle upwards and catches in the anterior tracheal rings. And you just rotating that tube round changes the angle, so the tip is then facing down into the airway, and that works most of the time. If you've got a stylet in your tube, pull it back even a few centimetres, and that just straightens the end or remove it altogether, and that will help your tube go down. If you don't have a stylet in your tube, you might want to try one. And I find it quite helpful in these situations to have the tube as straight as you can. And having that tube really straight just takes that bend out of it, which is the problem that's actually causing it to catch on the anterior trachea. You can downsize your tube, as we did in the case, 
smaller tube, less likely to get stuck in the airway. Um, direct laryngoscopy actually does have some advantages here. Um, with video laryngoscopy, you always tend to work around a little corner because even with a traditional Mac or Miller blade, you don't displace the tissues to the same degree as direct laryngoscopy. With direct laryngoscopy, you're looking straight at the airway and you can angle your tube more down. We didn't mention fiber optic scope in the case, but it is potentially an option, although I still think it's likely to fail. The scopes you're going to have to use won't have suction ports on them because they're too small. And I imagine when you win past the cores, you're just going to be in a big pool of blood and secretions. And I'm not so sure you're going to be able to see anything, but it is certainly something that would be worth trying. I hesitate a little bit to put the last option here, but the reason I have it was the advice given to me by an ENT surgeon in a very similar case that I was involved in. We had a grade three subglottic stenosis that nobody was ever going to be able to intubate. And when we, call, we called ENT right at the start, and when they arrived, the kid was peri-arrest. They delayed up the airway, and we intubated the kid with an uncuffed tube, like it happened in this case. I asked the ENT surgeon afterwards if you hadn't arrived when you did, and the kid had gone on and arrested was there anything I could have done different the next time? And the advice I was given was push harder. And when we actually looked in with the rigid bronch, you could see lots of little perforations in the membrane where we had been trying to intubate the patient with the tube. And had we potentially pushed harder, we might have gone through that membrane and down into the trachea. The reason I hesitate a little bit with this is certainly since then, I've had lots of other problems where it hasn't been a subglottic stenosis. And actually we've been up against the side wall of the trachea or in the pit of a tracheoesophageal fistula. And had you pushed harder in those cases, you would have caused serious damage. And it, actually, it was a fiber optic scope that was very useful in those particular cases. So I put it in there for completeness. You can decide whether it's going to remain in your toolbox or not. Final slide then, can't intubate, can't ventilate. Recognize the high-risk patient and don't get yourself into trouble. Um, you now know that the under ones are a high-risk group if you didn't before. Call for help early. Don't wait until it's too late and then it's going to take too long for the help to arrive. Really important that the team leader is not at the head of the bed and you're getting that second on consultant is really important. Even if you don't need them for managing the airway, just to run it and keep you on focus. If you do get a period where actually things are okay, stop. Every attempt you make is making things worse and ventilation will get more difficult. The swelling will get more difficult. So think about whether you need to continue on with what you're doing. You may have to, but it's always worth taking a pause and asking yourself that. Can you wake the patient up? Often an option for theatre, less of an option for us in the ICU, but it is certainly possible in some cases. Plan for failure in advance. Your next technique might be a video laryngoscope with a straight stylet, but what are you going to do when that fails? Don't wait until it fails before you decide what you're going to do. Have the next plan in place so you're ready to go should the technique that you're trying now fail. If you're calling ENT, get their equipment ready for them. Get a theatre team around who knows how to set it up. So when they arrive, there's no delay in getting started. And I have put ECMO down. I think in most cases, an ENT surgeon doing a tracheostomy is going to you're going to have quicker access to that than ECMO. But I've put it down for completeness because there may well be a case where it is useful. Okay, that's everything. I'll now take any questions that you have. Thanks very much, Chris. Very. An intense case and one that would you hope you never have to be involved with, but really good to consider and um, what options we have if that was the case. And um, we've what well, I thought questions are in the chat from Kathy Gibbons um asking about your thoughts for a bougie as the second attempt following initial failure, thereby reducing some peri airway trauma and opting for, for LMA as this second tube and in inverted commas. 
Yeah. Any thoughts on that? There's always there's always a bit of debate between stylets and bougies. Um, the problem with the five French bougie that you need to use in this patient is incredibly flimsy, and getting it into the airway doesn't always guarantee that the tube is going to go over it. And I I I use a styleted tube for all my video laryngoscopy intubations with that, you know, and I have a much higher success rate with that than I would with a bougie. Other people use bougies and. Again, I would have some concerns and babies this size that actually going with a bougie, you're more likely to cause trauma than a stylet. And I have seen lots of perforations um, from bougie use in small patients. So it's par partially, uh, I think, personal preference, but um, I, I would prefer a styletic tube. And I, I think you, in my hands, that I'm going to have more success with that. Perfect. Thanks, Chris. And then Stephen, um, Mullen, you, you, you put one into our chats um, about making a decision to do it. And once you've decided to do it, do you wait for the patient to rest or do you jump in before? Yeah, so I, I think <laughs> I think you, you you shouldn't be waiting for a patient to arrest. That's that's never that's never a good technique any time, I don't think. Um, your your chances of success are, are going to be fairly low. But once you've exhausted everything else, and it's like I said at the start, it was clear this kid needed intubated. So once they've reached that point in the journey where you're not going to recover them and you've tried everything else, you're going to have to try this because death is what's coming. And if you wait to the, like in our case, you actually got the airway sorted, but there was such a long period of lack of oxygenation that continuing on with CPR was deemed to be inappropriate. And I, I think, you know, you've minutes are important and you should be doing this at the right time. And that's why the algorithms are there. They're, they're not perfect in the fact that there is techniques in them that are recommended that aren't going to work in patients of this size um but i i think you shouldn't be waiting for them to arrest <laughs>